Right. All right. Anyway, Joe's going to join us in just a minute. Joe doing a very fine job. Very different sensibility, very different writer than uh, Brittany was. Right. Uh, more steeped in uh, a lot of the analytics stuff. Uh, and he joins us right now is our friend Joe Tressa, uh, new friend amongst us here in Baltimore. Joe joins us. Uh, he's with MLB.com covering the Orioles. Joe, you're on with Stan the Fan and Craig Heist. How are you? Hey, hey guys. Good morning. Stan, are we going to talk beat poetry this morning? Are we going to talk some on the road? We could talk We could talk a little Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, <laughs> but we'd be way over Craig Heist's head. I don't, I don't like to do that to my co-hosts. No, the only thing the only thing I know about culture, Joe, is in the bottom of a yogurt jar. <laughs> Touché. All right, Touché. fair enough. We'll save it for another day. All right, good enough. Hey, um, yeah. we're we're just a few days. Well, we're just two days away from uh, this uh, MLB draft, which the Orioles only for the second time in their history have the number one pick. Are you reading the tea leaves any which way to, to to have a real feel for which way Mike Elias and the Orioles are leaning right now? Um, to be honest, Dan, I, I don't I don't think anyone really knows for sure. I, um, I, I I think the best that we can do right now is kind of um, is kind of like you said, read the tea leaves and kind of try to like put this puzzle together backwards and and but but honestly i think if you read most mock drafts and everything like that um it's all really conjecture at this point um uh, everybody still has adley rutschman going number one right um but a lot of that is almost by default because michael Elias keeps things so close to the vest and that's kind of to be expected right that's how they operated yeah. um with the astros in in houston for for years and years when they had top overall picks um They've actually made a habit over there of not finalizing their number one pick decisions until until draft day. It sounds like that's going to happen again this year. Michael Elias basically said that yesterday. He said, we're not going to make a decision until Monday. So you can't really know what someone's decision is going to be until they've actually made it. And um, it sounds like the Orioles haven't yet. Um, and that's kind of by design. They, they want to get in a room and air it out with their entire cost. Scouting staff, and they want to make sure that whoever they pick, whether it's Adley Rutschman or Bobby Wood Jr. or Andrew Vaughn, or maybe somewhere you know someone, someone else even um, a little lower down, they want to make sure that's the right decision and right for them. I just wanted to ask you one question. It surprised me yesterday. Keith Law did a podcast with Buster Olney, and he said that he thought Rutschman and Vaughn were the two best clear-cut talents at the level they're at now, and then he said, then there's the next tier of three or four players after that. Do you have any sense how seriously the, the club views Vaughn, I guess, is the question? Well, the only thing I would say is that Andrew Vaughn is almost like scientifically created in a lab mm-hmm. for the type of analytical models that the Orioles will use. Right. Um, you know, if you look, he's a high, he's a high power low strikeout, impact bat. And he's probably major league ready or at least close to it, maybe in a year, year and a half. He's probably the closest to major league ready bat-wise uh, in the entire draft, right? Yeah, a lot, a, lot of people, a lot of people yeah. think he's the best all-around hitter in the draft. Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of people think he's the best hitter in the draft in several years. So when I see Andrew Vaughn, I see the type of players that, that the Astros won the World Series with a few years ago, mm-hmm. right? If you remember, they kind of, 
they kind of bucked the game a few years ago by by having a, 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 a team full of great hitters who never struck out. They yeah. hit for a ton of power, and they never struck out. And he's the kind of guy, if you go back and you read Moneyball, that 15 years ago wouldn't be a first-round draft pick, mm-hmm. or he probably wouldn't even be a Cal Berkeley. Right. But he would be a guy whose numbers jumped off the page, and the A's and, and other analytic, analytically inclined teams would try to target in the later rounds as kind of a steal as somebody who they knew whose bat could play immediately, but someone who maybe had some other kicks against them. You know, he's not very big for a first baseman. He's a corner player, so these, these types of players typically didn't get picked in the first round. Now things have changed, right? Scouts and college programs and, and major league teams look at the game a little differently. A kid like that is at Cal, and he puts up incredible numbers. He's one of the best players in the country. Suddenly he's a phase of first-round draft pick. So in that sense, you know, I can really see them, the Orioles, loving him. You know, he, he is kind of like, he's kind of like engineered for the type of analytical models that they rely on. Um, and he does a lot of things that they can project with some serious certainty as him being able to do in the major leagues. Now, that's all that said, right? You're not just looking for a, a, a good first-round pick here. You're looking for a franchise cornerstone. And the reality is that switch-hitting catchers like Adley Rutschman, who can hit for average and hit for power, and high-ceiling shortstop prospects like Bobby Witt are just rarer. They just yeah. are. There, there are just less of them. Um, and I think that's why a lot of people have both of them higher on the Orioles draft board than Andrew Vaughn. But that doesn't mean that Andrew Vaughn, you know, his skills wouldn't play now and that they don't probably love what he brings to the table. Well, what scares me the most about Rushman is the fact that we had another guy in this town named Matt Weeters who obviously came with a lot of a lot of hype. hype yep. And and yet his problem throughout his career was he was never able to stay healthy. And when he was healthy, I think early on his career, you, you certainly saw the tools uh, that made him that kind of a draft pick. But if, you know, and again, you can never count on what it's going to happen injury-wise, but uh, uh, that's the only thing that scares me with that. You know, I think a lot of people are going to, if they take him, I think a lot of his, people are going to draw that comparison his, to Matt. His hit tool, and I know we're asking the question to Joe, but his hit tool was never what we were quite led to believe and, Joe, that brings me to – I want that answer to that question. But, you know, since Matt Wieters was drafted, we really have had the advent of the shift. Do you think that the shift plays into who they will pick? In other words, is is Rutschman a guy who can hit to all fields the way I sense Vaughn can? Um, according to the scouting reports, yeah. I, I, I don't think that they – look, I, I think that – all these guys at the top of the class, you know, their talents are transcendent enough to where, like, you know, they're they're up, they're kind of up there for a reason. Um, to get back to the to the Weeders comparison, you know, we, we were, we're having this discussion pretty recently, and whether whether you compare him to Weeders or you compare him to Buster Posey or you compare him to Joe Maurer, um, you know, other 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 uh, catchers who have gone really really high and had pretty distinguished careers, you look at the ceiling for a catcher, and you look at the lifespan for a catcher in terms of how long they stay behind the plate and how much of an, for how long that they have an impact bat, right? And a lot of these guys by 30 are either not behind the plate anymore mm-hmm. or they've been slowed by injuries or their bats weren't what they used to. If you look at like a best-case scenario in a Joe Maurer or Buster Posey type, you know, 
you look at their careers and, and you see three World Series, you see batting titles, but you also see not a lot of longevity, right? Yep. And I think it's fair for a catcher to, to, cut, for, for, to, to be concerned about that, especially when you're, you're looking to draft a franchise cornerstone, cornerstone whose value you want to maximize for as long as you can, right? You want to build around someone like that. That's why I think there is some attraction um, in a shortstop like Bobby Witt Jr., who's younger, who you can project to be a middle-of-the-field player for a decade or more. You know, even if Adley Rutschman is a five-time also, four-time also, like Matt Wieters, or more so, an eight-time also, or, or, or whatever, whatever it might be, even if he's a future Hall of Famer, he could not be behind the plate, you know, in less than 10 years. That's just what happens to catchers. So I think it's something that the Orioles definitely have to consider, and I think it's a legitimate concern. Anybody else? Uh, one of the things that Stan was uh, talking about after we get through with the draft is, you know, the international market. And we heard Mike Elias say that's probably the most interesting or maybe the one thing he's more excited about than anything else. How do you see that going? Uh, and, and what are you hearing about that coming up? Uh, because obviously they've got more money than anybody else right now in that international market. Uh, and then obviously later it resets. But uh, what do you what do you think they're trying to do here? Yeah, well, I, I kind of see this as more of a long term play. Um, I know Elias had said recently that it's going to be the biggest international class um, that the Orioles have ever had, and, and that's probably going to be true just because of how little uh, yeah. they engaged in that market in the past. Um, but when it comes to these types of players, and Elias has told you know told me this many times, he says it on the record all the time, um, a lot of these teenagers are kind of spoken for two or three years uh, in advance, right? There's a lot of advanced work that goes in. They have under-the-table agreements with other teams um, from the time they're 14, 15 years old, then they sign when they're 16, 17, technically, um, you know, at, 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 around this time. But really, the, the, the agreements and the scouting, all that's happened years in the past. Um, so what I think with the Orioles now, they're getting this, their operation in Latin America off the ground. Right. Um, they're also a really good start. I've had people tell me that they've seen more uh, Orioles scouts at uh, showcases in the Dominican Republic than they've seen at any point in the last 10 years this spring. Now, that's, that's positive. That's, that's a good sign. But does that mean that they're going to compete with the Yankees and, and some of these other teams and, and the Red Sox that compete uh, at the top of this market right away? Probably not, just because all the, the top-level players who are going to get the most money this summer, all those deals have already been struck, right? So I think that they're going to use the international bonus money that they have left um, and sign a bunch of players to kind of replenish their system a little bit. I don't know if you're going to see the top-tier-level player um, signed by the Orioles this year, and there's a clear you know, line of demarcation between who these top prospects are and who the ones who mostly fill out rosters are. But you know, that doesn't mean that they won't be in play for those kind of guys two or three years down the road. Um, hiring Kobe Perez from the Indians this, this winter to be their head of international scouting, um, major, major pickup. He's got a lot of pedigree in Latin America, a lot of experience, a lot of contacts, uh, and those are the kind of things that really rule down there. And that was definitely a step in the right direction. They'll continue to go in that direction, but they have a long way to go catch-up-wise to compete with the Yankees, with the Red Sox, with all these other teams that invest have invested so heavily in Latin America for years. Sure. And I don't think you're going to see the fruits of that in terms of top, top-level talent 
at least for a few more summers. Yeah, I, don't, I agree with you. I don't think you'll get the top-tier talent for a couple more years, but I think when you put maybe 10 or 12 young, raw Latin American players into a system, be they arms or position players, I think you, you never know when you're dealing with 16, 17-year-olds how they're going to be when they're 19 or 20. I mean, Jonathan Scope, his body, it was remarkable the difference between when we first saw him in spring training and then two years later it was like a boy versus a man. Totally, totally. And, and you always have, you know, kind of those those kinds of growth spurts and, and you can never totally predict um, what, what a kid is going to look like five or six years down the road, right? But at the same time, the top-level talent, um, the the – the guys that the Yankees pour six-figure bonuses in and compete with the with the Red Sox for, um, most of those guys tend to tend to be the guy that they think they're going to be, right? Like a Gary Sanchez, yeah. or a Luis Severino, or a yeah. Domingo Herman, those those types of guys. Um, but so it was that's, in, that, that's all I'm saying. It was also interesting, though, when I asked Brandon Hyde that question, he re- was reminded of the fact that when he was with the Cubs, he saw Glaber Torres and Eloy Jimenez when they yeah. were first drafted by the Cubs. Ultimately, both were used as trade chips to get them that World Series, but it, it was interesting to hear that. Uh, totally, ju- totally, and these guys have value, right? And that, that's why Brandon Hyde and Michael Elias have been saying all along, yeah. they're just trying to infuse the system with as much talent, and by that, they mean as many assets as they possibly can because then you can do a lot of things. If you you can you can use them on the trade market, um, you can see if they grow into from prospects into players. You can um, you, you can do a lot of things to kind of manipulate your roster. This Stan, this roster is going to look so different just oh, in two God. months than it yeah. is now, yeah. and then in two yes, years it it's going to be have a complete oh. facelift. Hey, I just wanted to be clear because Craig alluded to the fact that the Orioles have uh, thinks they have more money than anybody else. And then you use the phrase, well, I don't think they're going to use all that money up or whatever. On July, and tell me if I'm wrong, Joe, they had money in 2018 to 19. It resets on July 2nd each year. Is that correct? So the money you had in that pool just goes away. It's not like added onto your pool in 2019. You zero out, and then on July the 2nd, you start back up with eight or nine million dollars or whatever the number is. Correct. And what what it actually is is it's not it's not actual dollars and cents. It's more of the right to spend yeah, exactly. enough money, right? And so what the Orioles did was they they boosted their bonus pool with all those trades last summer, right? For Kevin Gossman right. and, and, and and some other players. Um, they acquired all this right to spend all this money and they and the idea was that they would target uh, those three big Cuban prospects, right, and Victor Victor Mesa, right, Victor, right. his brother, and Sandy Gastone. They lost out on all those prospects, and then they had just a bundle of, of international bonus money. They had, they had about $7.5 million as of the winter meetings. Um, and no, and nobody to spend it on. And, and nobody and to spend it on. Yeah. And he knew he wasn't going to spend it all, so he used it in other areas, right? They used it. They used some of it to trade for Keon Broxton, for Dwight Smith, for uh, to acquire some minor league depth. Uh, they're probably going to use uh, at least some of what they had left to 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 make some international signings on the lower end. Also, yeah. it resets the international signing period ends on June fifteenth. Okay, and then there's a two week grace period, and then all the money resets on January uh, July second. Yeah, I think people were totally confused 
with the Keon Broxton deal because the money the Mets got in that deal was money for the up until used up until June fifteenth, and there was nobody really to sign, was there? Well, what teams do when they acquire international bonus money this late in the game yeah. is they really use it to fill out their Dominican summer league. Okay. You know, they they use it to sign guys who um, that you kind of need to to fill out a system. Right. But we, but people like us don't really hear about. All right. And that the, and those players have value to a club. It's just it's just it's just people they need. Joe, let me ask you this: as far as the 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 current club. And what they're trying yeah, to do let's... as far as development is concerned. Last night, after uh, a 90-pitch first inning by both teams, if you'd have told me Andrew Kashner was going to get through five innings in that game, I told you you were nuts. <laughs> and yet, uh, Bruce Bochy said in his post-game comments that that might have been one of the guttier pitching efforts he's seen in a long, long time after he faced ten guys in the first inning and gave up the five runs. And, of course, we know the Orioles answered that with six in the bottom of the inning. But just the makeup of Andrew Kashner and kind of what he's bringing to this team in terms of attitude and maybe rubbing off a, a few things on that he's learned down through the years on some of these younger guys. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think he's been a veteran presence in the rotation, and that definitely brings some value. Um Look, he uh, he really enjoys that role, right? Of being of being a, a, a big voice in the clubhouse and uh, being a guy that that a, a young rotation, a young staff can kind of look up to and rely on, um, especially you know, off the field. But but really, where they need him is on the field. Um, and you know, he, he's been one of their better pitchers up until a few you know these, these last few starts. Um, talk about assets, I think. I think he's a guy that, especially if he can, if he pitches, if he turns things around a little bit, pitches a little better, like he was maybe in early May and late April. Uh, he's a guy that could fetch some value on the trade market later this summer, just because uh, he's throwing harder than he has in years. He's striking out more hitters than he has in years, last night notwithstanding, um, and he can help a contender whether it's in the rotation or the bullpen. Um, the Orioles don't have a lot of arms like that that they can shop. And uh, he's probably not going to reach the innings necessary for his for his uh, 2020 option to automatically vest. Right. And so, you know, he's a guy who I can definitely see pitching for a contender later, you know, down the stretch run. What about the, the, the story that surfaced about eight, nine days ago where he came out and said, boy, if I'm traded, I'm, I'm probably just going to quit. You know that's that's interesting. Um, I heard some rumors that he was pondering retirement earlier this spring, also. Right. And you know, that's kind of Andrew Kessner's personality, right? Yeah. He, look, he technically doesn't have ten and five rights, so he right. can't legally nix a deal. Right. Uh, he can't say no, I'm not going, like like what Adam Jones did last year. But uh, you know, for a guy who's so about the Orioles, right, and loves this role as like a clubhouse leader and right. someone that this team can rely on, if if the Orioles want to trade him and that brings value back to the organization and he instead goes home and sits on the couch uh, and, and, and doesn't pitch for it in a place he doesn't want to for six weeks, um, you know, that kind of doesn't vibe with the image that he's kind of yeah. building right now. So yeah. I, I wonder how much, you know, how much of that is bark and how much of that is bite. Um, but I guess, I, I guess we'll just see how it plays out. You're, uh, we're, you know, we're 50-some games into this thing now, uh, and you, you spent spring training with him. Your impressions of Brandon Hyde and how he is handling the job? Yeah, I think Brandon Hyde is refreshingly accountable, honest. Um, 
genuinely interested in helping build this team. Um, you know, pretty smart baseball guy. Um, I, I do think that uh, the job is a little more difficult than he than he already than, than he originally envisioned. Right. Sure. I think that the losing um, has has you know frustrated him a little bit, as it has you know as it kind of would anybody. Uh, that said. You know, he's really handled all of it with, with the plum, and um, that's not easy to do for a first-year manager when you're learning a new city, a new organization. Uh, you're learning how to handle the media every day for the first time. Um, look, I think he's, from day one, he's been accountable. He's been honest. Um, he's been upfront about a lot of things, and I think that has made him very easy to work with from, my, from our perspective. Um, and from a player's perspective, they really like the kind of easygoing uh, nature that he brings to the clubhouse. They like his upbeat personality. He's been relentlessly positive, um, in, you know, in, in the face of in the face of a lot of losing. And that's not easy to do. Um, he's clearly uh, he clearly knows what it's like to see something like this all the way through. And I frankly think it's very admirable for somebody who wants to come do it again and build yeah. it from the ground floor. Um, you know, he remembers winning with the Cubs. He likes winning, and he really, really wants to win. And I think it's important when you're at this point in the rebuild to have a guy like that in the trenches who can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel, even if it's a little far away. You know, one of the things he he must have seen, too, though, in working in Chicago is that when Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer started in Chicago, they picked out their manager, and his name was Dale Sveim, and after I think it was just one year, they said, "Wow, this isn't the guy for this rebuild. Uh, we're going to get Rich Renteria. He's the perfect guy." And then I think either one or two years later, Joe Madden became available, and suddenly Rich Renteria wasn't that attractive. Do you see Brandon Hyde as someone who can make it through the tough times and come out the other end and reap what he's planted, so to speak? I do, and it's for a few reasons, right? Um, I kind of look at it this way. There, you know, every team drafts and develops players that they start out in the minor leagues and that they hope one day kind of take the reins at the major league level and then you build around. What we're seeing in the majors now is a, is a small but emerging trend of teams who are doing the same thing with managers, mm-hmm. right? You look at what the Rays did with Kevin Cash, um, who replaced Joe Madden in Tampa Bay. Kevin Cash was 40 years old. He'd never managed before. Right. The idea was he's going to develop with this young team at the big league level so that when we're good, he's going to be a good manager, mm-hmm. right? And you see this year, the Rays are good, and Kevin Cash is a good manager. Yeah. And I kind of see Brandon Hyde in that vein a little bit. He's, he's around the same age. He was 45 when he got the job. He'd seen winning before. Um, it was his first year as a, you know, his first tenure anywhere managing. Um, and they knew that the next two, three, maybe four years were going to be development themed, right? So yep. why not go in with the mindset thinking, we're not only going to develop players at this level, but we're going to develop a manager as well. And I think that's, the kind of progress that we it would be it would be intelligent for us to track and see how Brandon Hyde develops and maybe when they're good in a few years you know he's he's uh, he, he has more experience than he would having you know 
manage a, a really good team right off the bat because he's kind of been through the, the horrors and, 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 and come out the other side. So that's kind of how I see it. Uh, he's younger than those guys in Chicago were. Yep. He's less experienced than those guys in Chicago were. He's more of a, de- he has a development themed resume. Um, he's just a different mold. We're talking. Um, Go ahead. And so that's why I think he's probably in for the long haul. We're talking with Joe Tressa, MLB.com. Joe, before I let you go, I got to ask you the, the question about the 8,000 pound elephant in the room. Um, DJ Stort was having a remarkable last 30 days or so down at uh, AAA Norfolk, and his combined work this year was 300-plus batting average, more walks than strikeouts, on-base percentage of 425, little more power than he'd ever shown. Uh, he had to have a place to play. Um, at the same time, Chris Davis, who battled back mightily from uh, the slump of uh, – 2017 and 18 and the first 35 at bats this year had a nice 55 at bat run and then fell apart again um the the combination of dj needing a a place to play at the big league level and chris davis is um, again repeating the problems he had earlier can you see this thing coming to an end with chris davis i kind of see it more working out at this point. Yeah. Um, I kind of, I kind of think we're still early in that game. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be honest, um, it, is it a roster puzzle? Is it a bit of a crunch? Yeah. Um, is it that drastic? I kind of don't think so. Um, I mean, the Orioles have been playing with a short bench all year, right? The, they could, as a simple solution, they could play with. Uh, an eight-man pen or a, a seven-man bullpen for a while. Right. Um, there could be another injury. Um, you know, I think that it's more more of a question of what happens when Trumbo, Mark Trumbo, and Chris Davis are both healthy, right. both ready to be on this roster. Then what do you do? Then you have a little bit more of a, a dilemma because the two guys, two spots are being taken up, and frankly, you have players in Renato Nunez at DH, Trey Mancini at first base. Dwight Smith Jr. in left field for the most part, and now D.J. Stewart in right, who you want to see play every day and who are performing. Um, look, Trumbo is going to be reevaluated in mid-June. Right. There's no guarantee that he comes back after that. You know, There's no guarantee that he gets through the rehab assignment healthy and ready. Um, with Davis, they'll probably wait a little longer, maybe even send him on a rehab assignment. Yeah, it's um, they, they can elongate this thing and they can slow play it. And some of it um, has I think to, that's what they'll do. Some of it has to do with how DJ Stewart performs. If he pushes Absolutely. them, if he pushes right. them to have to make a decision, uh, we really appreciate your coming on, Joe. We'll see you. At the, we'll see you at All the right. ballpark. And uh, right, thanks really so ha- much. We're really happy you're part of the Baltimore media 